Did you know, about to blow some of your minds, all right, this morning, did you know that for just about anything that you are interested in, any hobby that you have, any, anything that you enjoy doing, there's a Christian version of that? Did you, did you know that? Like, there's Christian versions of clothing. Like, if you really like Reese's Cups, you can get a Jesus is my king, and it looks like, you know, in the Reese's, like, anybody have that shirt before? Or uh, music, like, if you like certain types of music, there are Christian versions of that music that you can wear that. There's probably, like, a Christian mower out there somewhere that you can buy that's, like, it's got a cross on it, and, you know, it's, it's branded, so you know, like, it's, it's holy, it's been blessed by God. Now, some of you don't know this, some of you are not aware of it, but there, there's a Christian version for just about anything, and about the peak uh, for that was in the 90s. In the 90s, I don't know if you remember, but there was just, it, it was just this peak momentum of the Christian subculture bubble, which since I think has popped, but I worked at a Christian bookstore named Heaven and Earth. Anybody remember Heaven and Earth here in the Richmond area? Yeah, I worked in Heaven and Earth, and we had some interesting uh, marketing, <laughs> you know, things that were used, but one of, one of those things that became really popular was that, hey, uh, here are Christian versions of, of pop culture. So, for example, one of the, uh, one of the things, big things was music, like, hey, if you like this band, check out this Christian version of that band. So, if you like the Cranberries, then you should check out Sixpence None the richer, right? If you're a big Billy Joel fan, well, here, you know, there's a chart up there where the CDs were, then you need to check out Michael W. Smith, like get his, get his album. Or if you're a big fan of Dave Matthews, then you've got to hear Caveman's Call. That way you can go out and burn all of your secular albums. So, like, it wasn't like the, the Spotify recommendation list, like, here, here's some other bands that you might really like and you should listen to. No, this was so you could replace uh, your CD binder of, from all of your secular albums to a more sanctified collection of CDs, all right? So it wasn't like if you like Chumbawamba, you should also listen to Newsboys. You know, it's that band that had that one song. Uh, it, it was that, no, you shouldn't listen to anything secular. You should only listen to these Christ, Christian uh, discs, and you should buy T-shirts with Christian messages and mints with Bible verses on the wrapper. And to a certain extent, I think we should be willing to somewhat kind of chuckle at ourselves at the cheesiness of it. Like those, those mints were called, with the Bible verses on the, on the wrapper, they were called testaments. All right, so... It was painful for me to say, and you've heard me tell preacher jokes before, right? I mean, so to some degree, I think we should be willing to kind of chuckle at ourselves a little bit, but also kind of ask the question, what in the world were we thinking? Like what, when when we produce or consume or, you know, buy into Christian versions of of pop culture or products, like what are we actually trying to accomplish? And I'm not just talking about answering the question, what would Jesus do? I had one of the bracelets, too. I, I had the WWJD bracelet. Anybody else with me? You guys? Okay, a couple of you, like, you know what I'm talking about. You're tracking with me. We're asking that question, what would Jesus do? The, the church has long, throughout the centuries, swung this pendulum of trying to figure out, what does it mean to live out what God has called us to do? What does it mean to live out this idea of being in the world, but not of the world? That that Jesus says, hey, this world is is not our home, and so we live differently and we act differently. There's this call that we have to 
to holiness that he gives us, like he says, be holy as I'm holy. We take passages, for example, like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, and we read, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so for a century, we've tried to figure out, as the church, as individual Christians, we've tried to figure out, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy as Jesus is holy? What are the practical daily living applications that we put into practice so we can live the way that Jesus did, so that we, we can walk the way that Jesus walked? How do we pursue holiness? Does it look like Christian versions of culture? that we just kind of appropriate and, and brand and market in a certain way? Or is it something else? In the parable of the mustard seed, which we're going to be talking about this morning, in this long story short that Jesus gives to teach us what the kingdom of God looks like, I think he paints a slightly different picture than the Christian marketing and branding that we've seen throughout the years. So in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, that's going to be our text uh, for today. So if you have a Bible's with you, go ahead and turn to that. It's also going to be on the screen for you here. And here's what Jesus says. He says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, before you do a Google search, um, the mustard seed is not literally the smallest seed on the planet. But what Jesus is doing is sharing a proverbial truth that's relatable to the to the audience that he has there, because all of them recognize the local vegetation, that the mustard seed is the smallest seed of any of the plants they have there. And he's giving this picture of the kingdom of God having this seemingly insignificant, small, little start that ends up turning into something that completely overwhelms the world. And so we could look through history and see the growth of the church, the growth of people's belief in Jesus, and see the effect of that. For example, Christianity is still the single largest followed, identified with religion in the world. But somehow I don't think the reason that the kingdom continued to grow and expand through the world is just because people identified as Christian. What Jesus is talking about is more about what we live like and how the kingdom grew through that. When Je Jesus is telling this parable to this audience, he talks about the mustard seed. They're outside, they're hanging out together. The mustard seed plant is going to be everywhere around them. They're going to see this and they're going to know the impact of, of growing, for example, mustard in your garden. It was actually against kosher law for Jews to grow mustard in their garden because it would contaminate the rest of the garden. It would take over everything else. And so as Jesus is talking about this, his audience is kind of listening and saying, okay, the kingdom is like, it's like a mustard seed and you plant that and of course that germinates like crazy. It's going to take care of, like it's going to kill the tomatoes and the onions and the potato plants and everything else in the garden. So like, Jesus, why, why do you want us to grow that one? Like that, that's kind of crazy. That doesn't really sound right. In fact, as Jesus continues to talk, he, he says, yeah, this mustard seed is going to grow and it's become going to become like a tree, like this 15-foot-tall bush that overshades everything else and the birds of the air. And when, when he says this, he's not talking about like pretty majestic birds. He's talking about wild fowl uh, kind of come in and perch in the shade. So as Jesus is describing this particular garden, his audience is starting to think, 
all right, I'm not really sure where he's going with this. Like, this does not sound like the ideal situation. We're going to plant an invasive plant in the garden that kills everything else. We're going to invite, you know, like crows are not really good for your garden. I don't know if you, if you knew that, but right, can we have some confirmation Yeah, there that, that that's not good when you attract wildfowl into your plants and that kind of thing. In fact, his audience would be more thinking, you know, man, when I, we've heard from the Old Testament rabbis and teachers, like, God talks about the kingdom or what he's going to do through the Israelites as being this majestic cedar, like this beautiful tree that's planted on a mountain that's going to attract birds of every kind, like all the attractive ones, like eagles coming in and nesting, and it's going to be majestic, and it's going to sound amazing, and what Jesus is describing sounds kind of messy and unclean. The imagery they had in mind would have been Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 through 24. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. I will produce, it will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I drive the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. A splendid cedar. That just sounds like better imagery to me. So why, why is Jesus not using that example from the Old Testament? Why is he using this different one here? And I think the reason that he's doing that is because so often as we think about following Jesus, or the church is pursuing what Jesus wants, that, um, that what we look at is, is kind of the end result. It's the thing that happens after we die. Oftentimes we think, hey, our hope in Jesus leads to this experience that after we die, we get to be in paradise. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be where we, we want to be. And so we, we do things like creating a Christian subculture where we say, hey, let's try to experience this type of heaven and this paradise now together. Like, let's just hang out, for example, because we're all great people in this room. And second, we'll include second service as well. Did you? No? Uh, well, okay, okay, yeah, all right. We'll include second service uh, too. We're all great people in here. We live great lives. We're not messy at all, right? We don't make mistakes. We don't sin anymore. We, we make really good decisions. And so if we just hung out together, like that would be, that would be perfect. It would kind of be like paradise. And this is kind of what the Israelites were thinking at that time. It's like, man, we, we've got it together. God works through us. We're his holy people. Things are going to be amazing. Let's just kind of hang out together and spend time with each other, and everything will be great. And Jesus could have referenced in this passage rather than using the mustard, mustard seed metaphor, but instead he's describing that what God wants to have happen is something very different. Then, then what, the, what the end result will be, that, that's not going to be different. God is going to create this amazing experience that we're all part of it. But, but how we get there in the meantime is very different from what the end result looks like. The impact of the kingdom and the messiness that's associated with it and what we're called to do and how we're called to live out our faith is a little bit different from the end result. Like the no tears and the no crying and not being involved in the mess, like that happens in heaven and that's going to be true then, but... But we don't get to ignore that kind of stuff now. We don't get to put those, those themes behind us or aside of us. And so Jesus is painting this sweeping picture of the kingdom's impact through the centuries. 
That it's going to start off in this, this, this small way. It's going to be started off in, the, in this, this persecuted way where people are going to look at the kingdom of God and see it becoming firmly root, rooted and, and spreading through. And yet people are going to be trying to root it up and get rid of it because they don't like the change that it's bringing, the overwhelming impact that it's having in their life. It's changing culture. 300 years after Jesus, less than 300 years after Jesus, Constantine comes along and Christianity has become so politically expedient at that time that he changes the, the nation's religion over it. That's the impact of the kingdom is it, it, it continues to grow. But the reason for its growth at the beginning was not because it was popular. The reason for its growth at the beginning was not because Jesus was just a great moral teacher and people thought, oh, if I follow this, everything in my life will be perfect. There are other leaders before Jesus. There are other rabbis after them that were teaching the kingdom of God grew because three days after it was confirmed that Jesus was dead and buried, people saw him again. They, they experienced him again. They, they saw him walk and talk and eat and teach and spend time with them. It was that, that small beginning that little mustard seed, that's, that smallest beginning that, that ended up overwhelming everything else in their life. The, the kingdom of God has grown because it establishes new life by overwhelming the old. Hopefully that's the experience as Christ followers that we've experienced or continue to experience that, that the kingdom of God continues to grow and increase in our life and take everything over for us. It has grown from the followers of Jesus who have given their tired, broken, and sin-destroyed lives over to God who has exchanged a life that's full of self to one that's full of him, following what he calls us to in this life. It started through one, the Messiah, and continues through each one of us, just as it has throughout the centuries. It starts off with this single mustard seed of faith that grows within us and overwhelms every part of our life to grow and spread the kingdom. That's the power of of the kingdom of God. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just use the mustard seed to talk about the kingdom uh, of God. He also uses it to describe individual faith. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus' disciples are coming to him and they're saying, hey, we had this parent bring this boy with a demon uh, and he asked us to exercise the demon. We weren't able to do it. So could you handle this for us? And, and Jesus' response to them is, oh, you of little faith, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? He's so frustrated because as much as they've seen what Jesus has done and the impact that he's made on their life, they still, they still have not yet put their faith into action. And so when the disciples come to Jesus in private and ask, why couldn't we do this? In Matthew 17, verse 20, he says this, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, there's this metaphor, big results happening from small, faithful beginnings. And the truth in that is that nothing that God wants to accomplish in and through us is impossible. None of the life change, none of the truth of the resurrection that he calls us into, none of that's impossible with him when we're willing to put our faith in action. Real belief 
result in real action. James, the, the brother of Jesus, who was at the beginning skeptical of him, and then when he saw the risen Christ, he said, ah, now, now, now I understand, now I'm all in. He said, faith without works is dead. Like this, this doesn't just work. The kingdom of God doesn't just grow if we just self-identify as Christians and claim to be so, but don't live as though we are. The kingdom of God grows because the world is desperate for Christ followers who are living out their faith, not buying testaments or not buying and burning Christian CDs. You know, some of you were in youth groups where your youth minister said, hey, let's have this bonfire and have this, this thing, and you invited your friends to come with you to that, and they're like, no, nah, that sounds, that sounds kind of crazy. I don't think, I don't think I'm, I'm up for that. And don't get, don't get me wrong, I mean, there are parts about our faith, believing in Jesus, like that, that are non-negotiables where, yeah, that may be a stum- stumbling block for people, but what God is looking for is not so much us having a CD-burning party as it is living out the truth of his word in the lives of other people. Like, we so often have these, these things that we hold on to externally to identify as Christ followers, but that's really just kind of a distraction from how God calls us to live out our faith. So, so for example, when it comes to like Christian movies, and there's many of them that I, I just haven't seen. I'm just admitting that. I, hopefully that's okay. Um, you guys can write a nasty note on a connect card if you want to. If, you know, as a preacher, you think I should watch Christian movies. But I will say this. That the type of movies that I, I go in for are, are like Hacksaw Ridge which I, I'm not recommending that because it's very violent and it's rated R and some of you are too young for that and can't handle those themes. Um, but what I will say is th- this is why I find those types of things meaningful is because it's based on a true story of a real person who allowed their faith in God, started off small in their life, turned into something bigger than what they could live out themselves. If you read the story of Desmond Doss, if you've seen the movie and not looked at his background, the movie doesn't even portray all the things that he did in his life or as he was fighting in the war. Like, like that's, the, that's the kind of impact and legacy that God's kingdom lives on our life when we take our faith and turn it into action, not just putting it into external portrayals. This is the faith that disciples lived and died for as they allowed the kingdom of God to grow within their hearts. They rejected their culture and deference to the kingdom. They served others because of the kingdom. They sacrificed their lives to spread the kingdom. And this is the example of being holy as I am holy that Jesus calls us to in our lives. This is the ripple effect throughout the century that has changed how we take care of widows and orphans, how we raise our children, how we partner with our spouses, how we care for the sick, teach the uneducated, serve the poor, rescue the refugee, evangelize the unsaved. We are individually guided by the faith that is born out of asking not what would Jesus do, but what did he do? What are the ways that he lived out of his faith and took action in his life and to pursue that and then the kingdom grows. Long story short, with this parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of God overwhelms life, everything. And so while you don't need to necessarily have a Christian version of anything where it's branded Christian in order to have it and to enjoy it, you do need to have a Christ-like reason for what you do in your life and what you experience and what you consume and how it impacts what you do and live out your faith. 
I read, uh, I had a friend share this article talking about, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll say our lives should be lived in worship to God. And I read this article or as a blog or something like that where this guy was talking about this concept and saying, well, I, I don't know if I totally buy into that because there's so many things that are just kind of mundane and normal and ordinary in our life that we do that I don't know that God really cares about. And his example was mowing his grass. He said, you know, I don't know that God really cares about, I don't know if he finds it uh, worshipful or that, that I can glorify God by mowing my grass. And may, maybe you kind of think the same way. That just seems kind of a mundane, ordinary activity that maybe God doesn't really care about. And, and it, my first reaction to that is I kind of wonder, I wonder if that's what the person who is starving to death, I wonder if that's how they think about God. It's like, oh, man, I, I just... I hate the fact that I have to mow this this third of an acre while while you know I'm living on a cup of rice a day. Like like it's so um you, you guys can see like I'm having trouble with this already just just to get through like that line of thinking where we get so caught up in the minutia of the everyday these boring details that we just get caught up in and think well this is just how things are kind of supposed to be and one of the ways that we've tried to combat that is we say well let's you know the more the boring details of things oh, I gotta guess I gotta listen to music so I might as well listen to you know uh, music that's branded as, as as Christian and so that's gonna be the way that kind of I please God and glorify him with this and the reality is is Maybe if it's mundane and boring and you don't, can't find a way to glorify God in what you're doing or, or how you're approaching it in your life, maybe you need to get rid of it so you can create space where, where you can live out the things that God is calling you to. That, that maybe if you can't find uh, a, a way to glorify God in, in your mowing, in the yard that you have, may, maybe it's just a distraction then from what God is calling you to. The change, the overwhelming change of the kingdom, this faith in a risen and living Savior that other people desperately want to know about and hear about and need help in order to get there to that. Maybe we should remove some of the things that we've allowed to creep into our lives that, that just become ordinary and exchange them for the extraordinary kingdom of God for us. To me, it's one of those things that's kind of funny because every week at Velocity we take communion together. That that sometimes you know the thinking behind that is well, if you take it every week, then then it's not as special as if you save it for like a special occasion and and make this this big deal about it. And I, I completely understand that, and I and I get that. I get where where the where that's coming from. But the the reality is is when when we're living out our faith and our faith brings out real action in our lives throughout the week, is that this time for us together is something that as we come in and and experience this time of communion and recognizing that, that God has saved us through his son Jesus and empowered us to share that with other people, like we should be coming in desperate for this time together to share in what the picture of the kingdom of heaven is going to look like because of how much effort and time we spent in living out our faith throughout, throughout the week and sharing with others. That this time of communion becomes for us like this amazing picture of what we're inviting other people into with our lives. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and I'm going to read the message paraphrase for this, says, says this about the kingdom that you and I are invited into and inviting others into as we allow it to consume and overwhelm our lives. Here's what he says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? 
Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So often I think we think of the things that Jesus calls us to as things to add on to our life. And sometimes that seems overwhelming. It's like, oh, they're asking me to serve a church again. Or, oh, that, you know, Jesus wants me to read my Bible every day. I've got to add this other thing to my day. And really what he's calling us to is replace, replacing our old life with the new one that he wants to give us. 